welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Our next guest is a devoted champion of caring for others, whose unwavering dedication shines a light on the world of family caregivers and the often unspoken topics of redefined marriages in light of caregiving responsibilities. Through the transformative methods of writing, heartfelt speaking engagements, and active involvement in hospital research committees, Karen Grazianelli has embarked on a touching and tender journey to educate and embolden married and committed partners who shoulder the responsibility of caregiving for their spouses and significant others after an injury and medical setback. At the heart of Karen's mission lies an unshakable belief in the profound resonance of personal storytelling a force capable of kindling deep emotions and fostering meaningful change for others. Stay tuned. I am blessed to introduce you to Karen Razianelli. She believes in the power of storytelling to touch people's hearts and create positive change. One of her notable achievements is winning the runner-up status from Oxford Press with her essay titled, When the Sun Rises, which was later published in Brain Magazine. This essay delves into the impact of a traumatic brain injury on a marriage, which is what we want to explore today. Karen challenges the medical community to consider the broader effects on the lives of loved ones beyond just rehabilitation for the injured individual. Welcome, Karen. Hello, Louise. That was so nice. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I am so looking forward to this interview. I know that we have both been and still are caregivers, and I am just so curious and interested in the sense of Karen Grazianel. Who is the woman, Karen, the essence of Karen? I'm so glad you asked that because um, I have lately been trying to 
make sure I'm more balanced and not just caregiver. For the, the last seven years or so, when people ask, who are you? I introduce myself. The first thing I say is I'm a caregiver. So today, the first thing I'm going to say is that I am the oldest daughter of two. Mm. When my sister and I were growing up, my mother made us volunteer. And you know, when you're teenagers, that's what they're doing. They're making you do it, you know. And so we delivered food to elders. We went to nursing homes. I actually helped a lady who was blind and I'd take her to the grocery store once a week. And, you know, those were chores they felt like as a kid. But as an adult, I've adopted that sort of volunteer spirit. And I'd say my whole life has been about giving to others. Mm-hmm. So where you are in your family and then identifying as someone who gives back to others, a giver. I know your life changed in a blink of an eye. And I'm wondering if you would share with others what that was about and maybe weave in these two pieces that you've just shared with us about the essence of Karen. Sure. Yeah. Blink of an eye definitely applies to my husband and I, probably more me than him. The morning of February 8th, 2016, my husband got up to go for a run with his friends, two of our neighbors. And I usually ran with them, but this morning I had a class. So we kissed goodbye. He went out the door. I got ready for my class and was in the car driving, actually singing on the radio, having a good time when the phone rang. And I look and see it's my husband. So, hey, baby, you know, how was your run? I'm all excited to hear. And it's our neighbor. And the first thing he says is, I want you to know Victor is breathing and talking. And that totally threw me off. I'm like, I stopped smiling, turned the radio off. Like, what is he talking about? And then he proceeded to tell me that my husband had been hit from behind by a car, a 21-year-old driver with no insurance who wasn't paying attention. And that when he hit the car, you know, it threw him, it hit him so hard, it threw him out of his shoes. Mm. Luckily, my husband landed on a bush instead of the cement concrete, you know, street, but he was unconscious for a while. But he did say that the ambulance had him and told me which hospital to meet him at. And I got off the first exit and went to the hospital. And from that moment, our life has changed forever. Oh, gosh. From the call, there's something cellular, isn't it, when we receive that kind of information, even though it's such a tiny little piece of information where our bodies, our minds, our spiritual nature knows this is something very serious has just happened. Yeah, yeah. I'd say for me, just from the tone of Lee's voice, I knew it wasn't like a fender bender. And of course, them telling me he was knocked out of his shoes, you know how bad that was. But I wasn't prepared for what I saw. You know, when I got to the emergency room and I saw my husband there, I wasn't ready for that. And I I don't think anybody ever is. You know, he was very badly wounded, his whole body and, you know, bloodied and one eye was swollen and closed and he was acting out. My husband was doing what they call a memory loop. And so he was yelling, help the man, help the man. Um, And we were trying to restrain him. And then he'd kind of conk out and then recycle and do that over and over again. And 
And that was hard to watch. You know, the whole scene of that was just so hard to watch. And then the doctor came in and said they, you know, were looking at the scans and that my husband's brain was injured. And it's like, I heard the words, but they hovered over me. Like, did he say that? You know, because, you know, when you're watching TV shows, that's the thing. They always go, oh, but he's not brain injured. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief. I didn't get to breathe that sigh of relief, you know? Yeah. And we also know from the trauma experience itself, the brain is trying to keep us alive so we can keep our loved ones alive. And we're flooded with this numbing. So we're not even receiving information fully or accurately. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what my husband's brain was doing. He was in flight or fight mode, you know, trying to survive. And luckily he did, you know, he's here today, even though our life is different and challenging, you know, we're still together. Yes. Well, that's what we want to talk about today. And also just as a note, you know, for you as the wife, the family member who receives the call, the trauma experience is the same for us as well, you know, where we're flooded and either we go numb or we go hypervigilant. And I'm wondering for you what it was like in the beginning as we enter this trauma healing learning conversation. What was it like for you? Yeah, there were so many different periods. You know, at first it's horror and then it's relief because your person is alive. But then all these other things start happening because, you know, when your loved one's in the ICU, it's not, you know, they put a bandage or do a surgery and life is good. There's several procedures. Um, My husband got pneumonia that he almost died from. And, you know, in the two months he was in ICU, hills and valleys is what I would call it. Mm -hmm. It was hills and valleys. And I never knew which one was good. You know, (laughs) is climbing this hill a good thing or is going fast down this valley a good thing? It's foreign territory, those hills and valleys. It's totally foreign. And the people are speaking to you in a foreign language. So the doctors are talking. I'm not sure what they're all saying. I remember one doctor, I had to stop him and say, I have no idea if what you just shared with me is good news or bad news. Can you talk to me in a way that I can understand? Boy, I, I really remember that too, saying, can you please tell me that in plain English? And we're smart women, you know, just to put it out there, not only are we in a foreign territory with a foreign language, if you will, even for people who are educated and smart and intelligent, we need to have it deciphered and we need to be advocates to ask for that. Yes, you have to speak up for yourself. I learned that very quickly because they have hundreds of patients. They just move on. So unless you stop them and speak up for yourself and your loved one, You're just going to get passed aside. You know, my husband got better care than some folks I've talked to because I spoke up. Yes. Because I did research and would ask questions and would say, that doesn't make sense to me. Let's do something else. So, you know, you also have to make decisions. And some people aren't used to having to do that on the fly in a critical situation. And then you mentioned trauma. When we're traumatized, we're not at our best. That's right. I'm traumatized and I've got to make these life or death decisions multiple times for this man who's unconscious, you know, who doesn't know what's going on. And then we have three grown children. And so I've got to be 
the mom for them, be strong for them. You know, it's their dad, make sure they have some hope, even if I'm not feeling hopeful, you know, so there's a lot going on. If you and I could just take a deep breath on that, because our experiences are universal for families who experience catastrophic injuries of family members. Ooh, just to get grounded on that. There's a lot going on. And for medical teams to realize that, for families, for families to realize that, for themselves, and also for the medical teams, there's something about your advocacy, Karen, when you would stop medical staff and say, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. Yes. I too found that it allows them to pause and think through again what they just did or said. And oftentimes there was a tweak or a little change or something that made it better. So the questioning is very worthwhile for everyone, including the care team. Right. Because like I said, they're going so fast. They aren't thinking that way. I remember at one point I brought a poster in and put it up in the ICU because I was feeling that they weren't seeing my husband as a person. He was just the guy in bed four. So I put this poster in of a race we did. We did a 10 miler together and it was us crossing the finish line and my husband got it blown up for us. So I brought it in. So it's huge. You can't miss it. And I remember when the doctors came in to do rounds and they saw it, Victor had probably been there for a month at that point. And they saw it. And one of the doctors said, hey, this guy was a runner. And so I told them about that race. And then I said, yeah. And a week before my husband got hit, we were going out to Colorado to ski. And another doctor's like, oh, you guys ski? Have you been to blah, blah, blah? And you start talking about things. And I noticed that their demeanor their behavior, their approach to me totally changed after that because they saw us as a family. They saw my husband as a person outside that hospital room. Yes, it's such a beautiful act that you did. And noting even after 30 days or a month in the hospital, there can still be this incredible opportunity to bring the person who is in the bed alive in the eyes of the medical team. I did a TED talk on this and called it like painting the picture of the loved one because teams don't have the time, as you just said, to know or to inquire. And they oftentimes feel they can't because it's personal or HIPAA. That legal piece is oftentimes, I think, becomes a barrier for the relationship and the rapport that can be developed when we begin to see each other as human beings and have so much in common as family members with activities outside that ICU room. Yeah. Yes, beautiful what you did, beautiful. Since then, I have been focusing on trying to find other ways to bring that to light for the medical community. So not just on behalf of my husband, because he's out now, but that essay that I wrote for Oxford, when it was published in the Brain um, online magazine, I received so many emails and messages from doctors all over the world telling me how impactful that article was. They said, you have humanized your husband for us. Another doctor said, this should be what all my students read before I take them out on the floor to do their practicals, before they even touch a patient. 
And then a lady who owns a rehab facility in Denver said she was actually going to make it part of orientation. All her new hires had to read it. It was another way for me to open the clinician's eyes to the fact that, yes, you have this medical expertise, but unless you apply a human component to it, you know, you're not doing the best you can for your patients. Yes, we would welcome our listeners to read the essay, When the Sun Rises. It is a beautiful essay. And Karen, thank you so much for contributing that. And we hear the inspiration that it has created and impacted so many others, bringing our loved ones alive and how to do that and how critical it is. You know, I'm wondering too, because you also have written and talked about marriage, if we might turn our corner on what it was like for you in the beginning with Victor and the impact on your marriage. What was it like in the beginning once you got out of the hospital? Yeah, I call the first year sort of like our miracle year because it's a miracle we survived. It was so hard. It felt like when he left rehab and came home, felt like we'd been sort of dropped off into this like black hole. Good luck to you. You know, <laughs> we saved his life. Now, good luck to you. I had never gotten any training. I knew nothing, zero, nothing about a brain injury. The only doctor we had was his primary care physician. So we didn't have a neurologist. I didn't even know what some of these subspecialties were. Didn't know what he needed. And my husband was in denial. So he's, I don't have a brain injury. Leave me alone. I can do all these things. He wasn't able to drive. He wanted to drive. So we had multiple arguments. Had to hide the keys. Had to have one of our sons take his truck and um, hide it so he wouldn't, you know, try to drive. My husband was delusional. So he did not know the difference between a dream and reality. So there were things he'd say that did not happen. But in his mind, they did. Mm -hmm. And so you're sort of fighting these demons that you can't see. And my husband and I, before that, maybe we argued once or twice a year. But we are very good negotiators, very good at compromise. Like we had really, really good solid foundation. And here, almost every single thing is an argument. He gets angry in two seconds. So we have these mood swings. I don't know why. And all these are in addition to the physical things. He's got a walker. His balance is bad. (laughs) His vision, you know, it's all compounded. I'm feeling the heaviness, you know, in my own shoulders as you share this. Oh my gosh. Yes. And of course you add that he can't pay bills. He used to be the one to do that, take care of the cars. So it just keeps, it does, it keeps adding and adding and adding. And at that point I had gone back to work because I'd taken time off when he was in the ICU. So trying to work, trying to care for him, trying to care for the house. And you know what falls off? Care for me. Yeah. And you had three other children caring for the wider family, not just a wife, but still a mom. Yeah, I was going to say, we're so grateful. Our kids at that point were out of the house and on their own. And we always talk now, my husband and I, about how fortunate we were that the kids were not younger. Because had they been in the house with me, I I don't think I would have made it. Yeah, just uh, taking that in. You know, I think that it might be 
really helpful to unpack the richness in what you just shared with us. If we think about maybe the journey of a traumatic injury on a marriage, and there were a number of pieces in there, and and while you are working with a traumatic brain-injured husband, there are also a lot of parallels in what you experienced with anybody who has been catastrophically injured relative to the impact of narcotics in their bodies and in their systems and on their brains for days and weeks, where the injured person oftentimes doesn't remember or has a very different memory set and really clings to it because that's their reality and the arguments that can ensue and the separation that can come about between them and their care providers at home. Yeah. Can you unpack a little bit more of that for us? Yeah, that's a huge piece that has never been talked about. Not one doctor prepared me for it, nor since then, you know, when I mentioned it, uh, when it was going on, his primary care doctor, she's just writing prescriptions. So maybe this is too strong. Let me adjust this. And, you know, you go through the whole medication adjustment of too many meds and not enough of this and balancing that. And it's very, very frustrating. I'm trying to look up side effects and, you know, make sure things get taken as they should get taken. But um, when somebody who you're so close to and you depend on, you know, my husband was my tower. Now he's delusional. He's saying things that could be in a science fiction movie to like our neighbors, you know, (laughs) and uh, friends on the phone. And I remember our kids saying, um, dad is calling people and saying strange things. You need to take his phone from it. Well, that's going to be a huge battle if I try to take his phone from him, Mm -hmm. you know? So what I had to do was really decide what was important for us as a family, sort of our core things, because I couldn't do everything. So it was safety, his, mine, the kids, our safety. It was financials, making sure he didn't do something crazy with our money. And then it was mental, making sure his mental health got better and my mental health did not get worse. And so I kind of said, if it's not falling in those three things, I don't care about it. You know, (laughs) so if he's talking to the neighbors and he's talking about the moon landing in his backyard or on the roof, I don't care. They will understand or they will move along. You know, yeah, the reprioritization of your own goals and expectations and what is just part of it, what is, and being able to lean into that is a huge piece of navigating and surviving uh, the impact on a marriage. Yeah, because you can't do all of it, you know, and you try to, and it just wears you out. And we haven't even talked about the actual interaction between husband and wife. When I got off work, he's the guy who's the first person I want to talk to and see before the accident. I want to say this happened today. And yeah, all the the usual kibitzing that married partners do, you know, they talk about their day, they talk about what they're doing. They talk about people they had conversations with. Yes. Fun stuff. And because of his brain injury, 
I was finding that first off, I would have to pause. So say a few things, pause and wait because there was a delay in what he heard and then his processing it. So it's breaking up the conversation, almost like a radio, you know. And then it was, he would get flooded or fatigued quickly. So you can't say a lot. So now I have to be picky and selective about what I say. So am I going to share about my day at work? And it can't be my day, what one piece. And then I need to tell him that he has a doctor's appointment in the morning. And here's what's for dinner. Why well, can't do all three? Pick one. Which one's the most important? My day at work is not right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, And it just goes on and on like that until after a while, all we're talking about is medications and doctor's appointments and how you feel. And we're never doing that bantering light conversation that couples do. It's really extraordinary how complicated the light bantering is on the brain because it has so many facets and it weaves and meanders and the loss that a caregiver like you with someone who's also TBI can experience when your interactions become very staccato and just related to a short sentence at a time because the sequential thinking is not yet in place or consequential thinking is not in place or has been altered because of the brain injury while the recovery is ongoing. What a monumental feat. And what you figured out to do. Were you helped along the way to learn that? Or was that more of a training on the job? Yeah, a lot of job training. I learned to trust my instincts. Mm -hmm. um, I learned it whenever I didn't trouble, you know, so sort of like your body kind of tells you things, you know, if my stomach is in a knot, slow down, take a break, walk away because mm -hmm. I'm feeling fear, anxiety, something you know, and, and don't speak yet, you know. So I learned to trust my body and my mind and all the senses around me. Um, I did a lot of research as well. So I'm learning more as the months go on about brain injuries and then applying what I learned. I do a little testing. I wonder if this is his problem. Let me try this method. And if it worked, let's try it again. If it didn't, let's discard that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And so I was doing a lot of experimenting. Some things were helpful. Some things were not, but none of the things helped with that bantering and that companionship. And in fact, as the year progressed, I got lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And, you know, I've never been a big crybaby, but I would cry all the time, you know, in the shower, at the grocery store. Yes, I would just for no, for no reason cry. You know, <laughs> I want to cry right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or for for every reason. It's just that it is at places where life before the injury would never have been crying in the grocery store. Right, right. Yeah, without knowing, you know, some direct cause. But yeah, I was very emotional, nowhere to put it. And for me, I did not want to talk to our adult children about their dad in any way that might seem negative. And I didn't want to share with other people about our interpersonal relationship because I'd never been the type of person to do that. Like I wasn't the big girlfriend person. There's an awareness of the impact on the family system 
and the boundaries that are important to not spill over to be speaking what could be experienced as negative to chill your own children you know about their dad or to your extended family members because there's also this awareness that or at least a hopefulness that this too will pass but they don't live with you every day to know when it does and so when they see you next time they still think it's really awful <laughs> you know right it's really right. Tr- it's tricky stuff you know whom we choose to uh, really share and and talk with around this uh, loneliness and this separation that we're experiencing. Yeah, it really is. And I remember once going on a walk because, you know, we used to run jog every morning. After my husband's accident, I stopped jogging and going that route, but I wouldn't walk around the block, around my house and ran into a neighbor one day and she's like, you know, how how are you doing? And so I thought, well, let me tell her. <laughs> And so I do, I share how I'm feeling, which was not good at that moment. Mm -hmm. And she said to me something like, well, everybody has their problems. Just because your husband got hit doesn't make yours worse than anybody else's. And I was like, whoa, like, you know? (laughs) Yeah, wow. Why why did I get vulnerable for a moment just to get slapped dab? Yes, yeah. So it's sort of like you decide not to. And then when you say, well, maybe I can, pick the wrong person. And so it makes you hesitant to do that. But we do have to find our support for those kind of things because, you know, I couldn't hold that in forever. It had to go somewhere. Fortunately, I found a counselor and I started seeing a counselor and my whole life, I'd never done that. But she was so helpful because the moment I walked in that door, it was all about me, how I felt. And I remember the first time she asked me, she said, so how do you feel today? And I said, well, my husband this, and he did that, and blah, 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 but I'm doing okay. And she says, well, I asked you how you felt, and you told me all about your husband. Just pause on that for those who've never experienced working with a counselor or a therapist, and then to have your first meeting and to be asked how you are, and to have that awakening of, oh, I just talked all about the circumstances or the other person. How am I feeling about it? Yeah, yeah, it can just be a whole new awakening. (laughs) We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. 
blink of an eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www.baltimoremediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome, Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. For me, I was just so busy that I hadn't slowed down to think about. I Thinking back, if I had, I'm not sure I could have done all the stuff that I was doing. Mm -hmm. But luckily, meeting her and being able to talk to her, a professional who, you know, knew the pace and, you know, it was a safe environment for me to do that in. And and it, it helped so much. Yeah, just the care team and and also the awareness of busyness. You know, there are two kinds of busyness, right? One comes as a means to survive and keep things going and not pausing for the self-reflection. And the other can come from a real integrated sense of that energetic flow when you know that you are doing what you're intended to do. And Perhaps you are experiencing a lot of that now in your advocacy, which which I'd like to talk to you about in a bit. But if we stay on this topic of you and marriage for a moment, this care team idea, was it new for you? You had never seen a counselor before. What was that experience like? And was having others in your world a new piece for you? Yes. Yeah. My husband and I had both been pretty healthy. So we'd been half marathoners. We used to do six half marathons a year. Mm-hmm. But my husband also is retired military. So we've always done like the wellness checks and those kind of things. And I'm pretty good with our nutrition. So we've been pretty healthy. So care team wasn't anything that I had thought of previous to this. But now he's got multiple things. We've got a heart doctor. We got a pulmonologist. We have an internal medicine doctor. We eventually got a neurologist. We have a neuropsychologist. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But just that, to create the medical care team, very intentional people whom you've chosen to work with around the medical aspects of your husband's injury. Yeah, to, to that you assembled that. Yes. And then I have to communicate because at the time my husband was injured, things were not as electronic <laughs> as they are today. So I used to walk around with this big folder and it had all his x-rays from the ER and ICU, stuff from the rehab, by a list of his medications. And whenever we went to a new doctor, I'd show up with this folder this big folder stuff, you know, because I'm trying to keep everything cohesive. Right. You're Grand Central, the archivist. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm the one. And all the doctors were thrilled to have it. But, you know, imagine knowing that you're the person who's in charge of this stuff. And, you know, I'd go, 
I didn't go to medical school. So why am I leading this charge? You know? Another incredibly important role for a caregiver when you're working with someone who's had a catastrophic injury to have it all available, whether it's digital on a phone or in a flash drive or walking around as you did with a you know, full, major folder, because it's very difficult for those in the medical profession when there has been a catastrophic injury because the medical records are voluminous. Yeah. And to be able to pull up all the ones that are needed or necessary or when something actually happened or the right note, it might not just be a slide. What about this uh, care team for Karen? So the care team for Karen was, of course, my psychologist. So she was the beginning of that. Actually, I'd say before that, though, was my sister. Mm. I discovered that I could say anything to her Mm. and she would listen. Sometimes she'd offer me advice. Sometimes she'd just listen. There were times when I'd say to her, I'm on a walk. I just left the house. I'm about to cry. I just need to know you're there. I'm going to cry now. You know, <laughs> and just knowing she was on the other end was a saving grace. So my sister remains in my care circle along with my psychologist. Since then, I've also joined a couple of peer support groups. And I found those have helped me so much because these are people that are living the same life. Yes. So I don't have to over explain anything. I don't have to apologize for anything. They're never going to judge me. They've said and felt all the same things that I feel. And so I love, I look forward to when the caregiver support group that's sponsored by Brain Injury Association of Virginia, when that one's coming up, we get on Zoom. It's like I'm seeing old friends. And sometimes, you know, conversations are hard and they're sad, but we've all done that. So we know how to support each other. So I'd say that's the biggest part of my support group. It is astounding that when you are with another person who's had a similar experience in the way of a catastrophic injury as a caregiver, there's just instant credibility and connection where I've been there too. It might not be the exact same. It doesn't we don't expect it, but there's no judgment. There's, it's just full of compassion and helpfulness. Someone who really cares and a whole group. It's such a powerful, for people who might not realize the value of a support team. We've also experienced that with our Blink of an Eye team, with our navigators who go bedside and work with spinal cord injured families in the acute phases for first 30 days. And then thereafter, but the navigators themselves, uh, really, for when we are together, it is just, you know, like little butterfly wings uh, because we just get it. Um, and now you and I yes. will be doing, you know, some of that work together, which is so beautiful. I'm really wondering if we might also talk about if from a marriage counseling perspective as well, did you and Victor ever seek out marriage counseling? And if so, what that was like? There are a number of um, views that have been shared about that. And I'm curious if they're in alignment or if there's something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we had not done that before his accident. We were both very good communicators. And so I think we have been able to navigate a lot of things ourselves. We also got married a little bit later in life, which has probably served us pretty well too. But then once he got the TBI, communication gone, intimacy gone, 
you know, I'm lonely. I'm sure he's lonely. I'm afraid. I'm traumatized. He's traumatized. I mean, these are all the things that pull people apart. Yes. So even though he's getting healthier, I can say I'm probably not getting healthier, you know, my mental and subsequently physical health. And it was one day Victor was yelling about something and he previously wasn't a yeller. And it had been months, maybe a year since his injury. And I just said to him, I'm not going to live like this anymore. We've got to figure something else out. I love you. I'm not going to abandon you, but I'm not going to live like this anymore. Luckily, VCU, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, they have a TBI program and they were doing research on the impact of a traumatic brain injury on marriages. Mm -hmm. So we were able to get be part of that research. And luckily, we ended up not being in control. We actually got the marriage counseling that went with it. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time we ever had marriage counseling. But I'll tell you, it, it saved our marriage. It absolutely did. Because the lady who did it was a specialist in traumatic brain injuries. So she knew my husband's limitations. We didn't get, oh, you should say I statements and you should do this. And she knew there are things that he can't do. I got to learn more also about brain injuries. So I got to learn how they singularly view themselves, somebody with a brain injury. And I think people with chronic illnesses do the same things. So they're more inward. They're more thinking of their survival because that's where their brain is. Therefore, while he used to be thoughtful and helpful, it was not an automatic thing for my husband to help. So as an example, I'm coming in with groceries. I'm bringing in groceries, bag after bag, going out, bringing them in, and he's just sitting there. Yeah. You know, after a while, I'm angry, like, dude, <laughs> yeah. aren't you going to help me? And he says, oh, you didn't ask for help. Yeah. Well, I never had to ask the guy before for help. He would have done the first bag. I got this honey, blah, blah, blah. But this one is oblivious to it. Even though he's looking at me, his brain doesn't connect. Oh, she needs help. That marriage counselor explained that to me. She explained that that is how it is. It is not he cares less for you now that he has a brain injury. It is not he doesn't want to help you. It is that his brain is unable to make that connection mm -hmm. and that therefore I have to make it for him. That's so helpful because now it's taken out of the realm of our marriage is in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And it's more in a health capacity. Yeah, that normalizing that this is part of the brain injury. Yeah, yeah. So the more I learned, oh, it helps so much. And then I can depersonalize it. Like you said, normalize it. Now it's this is how it is. It's not this is what he's doing to me. This is how it is. And that just helped us so much, helped us be able to get through it. What a beautiful program and how essential it can be for marriages to survive or, or marriages where they're, you're taking care of a child together, you know, and, and the impact it's having. And I'm really fascinated by something that came to my mind earlier when you were speaking of, here's the family member with the catastrophic injury now finally you know, years later, getting better while the caregivers are getting worse. Almost yeah. like I, I think of it as um, like an X, you know, when we look at economics, 
that, to think about that inverse reaction to the experience of being a caregiver long-term with somebody catastrophically injured. And also for those who might be caregiving and loving, those who have been traumatically brain injured, but also those who are not TBI, but might be spinal cord injury or any kind of traumatic injury to look at the role of, of counseling and how essential it is to be working with a counselor who understands the medical condition. And I, I might add, and I'd be curious to your wisdom about this, who also has an understanding of trauma and the trauma experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I have talked to other caregivers who have done marital counseling you know, after their loved one got ill. And they've all said it was a disaster. A disaster. Didn't work, didn't help. It was a disaster. We hear the same thing. It is so important that the person that you work with is specializes in the thing you need because that is the driver of the whole issues, all the issues that you're having. And unless you can understand that, then you can't change things. So, you know, for the better. So if you're just with a generic counselor who knows nothing about spinal cord or nothing about the impact of being terminally ill, caring for a child who's, you know, hurt, that their life is not going to be the same. This is, you've birthed this child and all this, plus the time that a couple has to spend, you know, taking turns. You know, when we have babies, I've got the night shift tonight, you've got the day shift, and we expect that child to grow up and be more independent. When they're injured or terminally ill, that expectation no longer applies. And so you've got an infinite period of time where you're in these roles that can continue to pull people apart. So you've got to be very selective about who you choose to help bring you together. Yes, indeed. For a therapist or a counselor to have the awareness about the ongoing you know, the example of a child is so helpful because children then will grow and they'll grow out of phases and, and we go up and down and, you know, this is an amazing and everything's so adorable and joyful. And then, oh my gosh, it's, we, we know it's a growth spurt or, or something moving from one cognitive developmental stage and emotional stage into another. Whereas when, you know, you're working with uh, traumatic injuries long-term, even just the physical uh, attention that's mm-hmm. required to the physical body, the impact uh, of that on a on a marriage, and for a therapist to have some understanding that when your spouse or partner or child is catastrophically injured or terminally ill, it's not a stage. It's not similar to a phase of normal human development or something that will pass, but rather it's a long term new normal requiring or inviting many long-term changes. And that's part of the new way it is that needs to be worked through. Yes, and also that we all deal with it differently. So just because we're a couple doesn't mean that we both approach it the same way. You know, I know couples where perhaps the father is less hands-on. He may help with physical transfers and that, but he's not able to talk about the emotional feelings, right? 
And then you have the other, the wife who wants to talk about the emotional and he doesn't want to hear it. So again, another thing that's pulling them apart. Yes, many, many barriers. Many barriers. So a good trauma therapist is going to recognize there are things we're going to do together as a couple. There's things we're going to do individually and that's okay. And so let me meet you where you are and meet you where you are and help you come together when you can and then respect each other when you can't. But without that specialist who understands that we all grieve differently, we go through trauma differently, and that trauma isn't linear. It's not, I fixed you now. So it is so important that we are, you know, we check out who was, am I referred to? What do you do? You know, how long have you been doing this, et cetera? Indeed. This concept for then we in the marriage that we can never go back to our marriage before the injury. You know, it will never be the same. We can go back yeah. to learn from it and to see the changes. Uh, but that, that former marriage in all of its glory um, and whatever it looked like will never be the same after a mm-hmm. large impact on a family. Mm-hmm. I think that can be glimmers, if not even an awakening of something that could even be stronger and deeper. And I'm curious about the research at VCU of the impact of traumatic brain injury on a marriage, what they're finding. I can imagine it possibly might be both, but that the group who experiences a stronger marriage might be a very small subset. Yeah, I've seen some of the um, results uh, and they have it posted on their knowledge base. But uh, one of the interesting things it actually makes sense is for younger couples they're going to have a harder time because they don't have that foundation. So uh, the struggles of that, everything's changed. The dynamics have changed. There's no intimacy or the intimacy different is so much harder on a young or a new couple. Yeah. Um, folks that have been together for years, navigate it differently. They have stuff to pull from. We have memories and things we can talk about, laugh about. We've built all that up. But there's also this group kind of in the middle that maybe the relationship wasn't good before the incident happened. They might have been together, you know, for whatever reason, for kids or what have you. Now you've got this extra strain, you know, and those folks can move either way. So what they're trying to do is create now these interventions so that they can catch people earlier in the injury and hopefully close gaps before they become so devastating. You know, it's really been a goal of ours at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit to support marriages and families with our immediate intervention, but more as a byproduct that if you can help to give the information through a trauma-informed lens and really be there throughout all the transitions and the boo-hoos and the falling apart and the anger and You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has given us a beautiful diagram of the human experience of grief as around death and dying, but it certainly applies to the the death of things that we knew before in a marriage or the death that we knew, if you will, of our child or our loved one in the way that they were and how they are now, that we can cycle through these kinds of experiences and that for the marriages who feel that they've got some support, also look at it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's been said that it can be enormously 
therapeutically valuable to say, you know, we've had a successful marriage for whatever it was at the time, you know, of, of the injury for seven years or for 17 years or for 30 years or 50. And might we need to revisit different paths, different ways while still loving each other. And those are very delicate conversations that oftentimes don't occur in a marriage counseling office uh, where the counselor's goal is often to keep the family together or oftentimes proclaim when the marriage is just so dysfunctional or just there isn't anything else that can be done, it's time to divorce, but rather to really support families and marriages in a deep way to explore what their next steps will be. Right. You said a few things there. One of them early on was we're not going to get that old relationship back, you know? So part of the grieving is grieving that old relationship because it's gone and I've got to make a choice to build something new. That other person may be in denial and not wanting to build anything new or in their world, everything's fine. What are you talking about? People think it's 50-50 and you've got to meet me halfway. But, you know, my husband can't meet me halfway. So I had to make a decision that says, this is what I want. So what do I need to do to get what I want? And what I wanted was to be close and connect with my husband. I recognize I can connect with him the same old ways. You know, our intimacy is going to be different. You know, his whole, everything about him is different. We couldn't hold hands for the longest because, you know, I'd hold, reach out and touch his hand and he, you just want to keep me from falling. And it's like, sometimes I just want to touch you. We had to build up to even being able to hold hands. But we, I saw an opportunity. We took a trip after his brain injury. I think it was three years after his brain injury. And it was a big trip. We actually won these um, two flights, 2000 each. So a lot of money. So we're like, let's go somewhere we could never go on our own. We went to Southeast Asia. Mm. So we spent 30 days in Southeast Asia. And because it was so different, so foreign, I contracted a, um, a small travel agency that that was their area. So they could pick the places, you know, I kind of told them what we wanted to do. I also wrote a letter to the president of the company before we left explaining my husband's limitations. So I need people who aren't going to talk a lot. While I know it's going to be busy, we need to go off hours as much as we can, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so they responded back that, yeah, we can handle that. And they did. It, we had such a great time. But before we left, I said to myself, on this trip, Erin, you are going to look at your husband as the man you love. Mm. Not as the guy with the traumatic injury not as the person who needs your help. Look at him as the man you love. And like I said, this is three years in. <laughs> yeah. So we go on this trip and we go and we sightsee. They pick us up at the hotel and take us out, bring us back at the you know, early afternoon so you can take his naps. I have a book that I read, you know, I have several books actually <laughs> that I'm reading while he naps. And as we are experiencing things together, we are now doing what's called banter. 
because we can now go remember that bridge or that train and Mm. we can laugh about it. It's a new memory. It's something post, you know, something we've created together at his speed and his level. Mm-hmm. The more we banter, the more relaxed I feel, the less of a caregiver I feel. And by the end of that 30 days, we were in Cambodia. And I remember it because we come back. It had been a little bit overwhelming. So we came back early. So he's laying in bed, taking a nap. And I'm next to him reading my book. And Louise, I look over at him. And I see my husband, the man I love. I see him clearly and I feel drawn to him. And I put the book down and I scooted down and laid my head on his shoulder. Mm. And I can tell you from that moment, we have found a way to recreate our intimacy, not anywhere on the same level as before, but it's beautiful. Mm. So beautiful. And I'm so happy. And I made the decision to do that. So tender. And the effort that it takes to remove yourselves to another place, to attend to the needs without having to put too many of the old expectations on, and then to replace the lens of a caregiver with the lens of a wife who sees her beautiful a husband in an intimate way. Mm, yeah, It's just so beautiful, Karen. Yeah, but it requires that you be deliberate because we talked about how busy we can get, whether that's good busy, bad busy, whatever busy, you have to stop and prioritize. This relationship is the most important thing to me. So I need to give it everything I have, even if he can't. There can't be a you're not or a tit for tat. You know, it is with open heart that I give myself to you. And therefore, I am going to do whatever's necessary. The rewards are just so bountiful. Like you could never, ever, ever perceive that we could feel this deep love that we feel for each other now. I never thought we'd get that back. But it is unquestionable. It is undying. It is so beautiful. I'm just really moved by the quality of just what's coming to my mind right now of the mature marriage, that it might not be all the things that had been or that never had been, but you wished it had been. And it might also be a quality, not just about seeing your spouse in a new way because of traumatic brain injury, but anyone who is going through a catastrophic change and loss in their family to not just recommit to the marriage. That wasn't it at all. You prioritize what was most important to you, which was that daily intimacy of the banter and the physical touch, even if it was just the gentle physical touch that you gave and it was received. Yes. Yes. That's absolutely right. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So we have to be honest with ourselves and listen to ourselves because I could tell you, I could easily have said, we aren't doing this or that because of the medication season, or we aren't doing that, this or that because 
you know, he's in a wheelchair or whatever. There's a million reasons we can give for not doing this or that. Yeah. But there's only one for doing it. This is what I want. And I need to figure out how to make it happen. And once you make that commitment, all doors open. I'm also touched by the notion of the power of physical touch, because we know, of course, that that's what babies is immediately coming into the world need most for their bodies to re-regulate or just to regulate. And then as children and then growing into young adults and then adults, we all need touch in our lives. And sometimes the only touch that might still be thought of in a marriage is just sexual touch when there's so many, even more powerful touches of intimacy. Yes, there's so many. You just have to, like I said, slow down and, you know, start slowly. But um, like my husband and I holding hands, you know, was a big thing. This morning, I could see he was uh, getting anxious. And we're sitting having our coffee um, out on the terrace. And I got up and I put my arms around him and I just hold him. And then we rock gently for about 20, 30 seconds. And I can feel his body relax. And um, he said, thank you. I needed that. Mm-hmm. He says, I ground him. That's just because he's like, you ground me. So that's helpful. How many years was it until you had those experiences? Oh, my gosh. Um, we were together 20 years before the accident. Both busy, both, you know, busy career people. <laughs> and, and we travel. We had a great time. We did a lot of fun things. But we've had to slow down since this accident. And slowing down means everything we do is of a higher quality. Mm -hmm. You know, a hug isn't a quick, okay, see you, love you, bye. It's slower, more deliberate, you know, time to feel the warmth of each other's body. These are things that we just were too busy before. And now because we slowed down, They have deeper meaning. You know, you have that touch when you can feel somebody's inner heartbeat and they can feel yours and then it gets synced together. I mean, yeah, we had to slow down for all that to happen. Oh, the silver linings that are possible uh, amidst the catastrophes. You have created quite a life for yourself outside of your role as caregiver, but influenced by your role as caregiver. Absolutely. It goes back to my mother having my sister and I volunteer when we were younger. So I have that volunteer spirit. And when my husband got more stable, I retired. They offered early retirement and I took that from my company. So I had more time. And I said, I want to devote my time to helping other family caregivers because I never want another one to go through that dark year that we went through. So I've been focused on that gap of rehab to home because that was the part that was at the moment, the most immediate. Like I feel if I can get services and support to people earlier, then they'll make the journey much stronger and better. So I work with several organizations. Uh, One of them is VCU. I'm working with them on a research project to bring a healthcare worker with 
or pair them up with a family caregiver while they're in the hospital. Very similar to what you guys are doing with your field team. And then this person is going to go along with them to inpatient rehab. And then when they go home and what that person will do is help address needs as they come up so that it isn't, here's a list caregiver of all the stuff you need to go get and go do. Good luck to you. It is more of, oh, I see you can use this. Let me make a call. Let me help you. So that person has a helper with a medical black background as well as with the knowledge of resources, et cetera. So we're going to be studying that path. I'm also working with Sheltering Arms, which is a rehab facility in Richmond, Virginia. And we started a caregiver ambassador program. And what that is, is I'm one of their ambassadors. We show up to meet caregivers, family caregivers of somebody who's in the inpatient uh, ward, whether that's spinal or traumatic brain injury, a stroke, we try to pair them up with a caregiver who's also a caregiver of, of a TBI stroke or spinal cord. And what we found is that those caregivers are so receptive to talking to somebody who's been through it because they've been traumatized. They've been in whatever issue that they might've seen whatever the person went through. They've been in the ER, the ICU, and now they're in an inpatient setting. And all these places are foreign. Then they meet somebody who's already done that. And so for a lot of them, they're looking at me post seven years and it's hope for them. It's like, oh, well, she survived. They're together. They're doing this. We might be able to. And so just that hour that I spend with them is so valuable. Where you and I have met and walked on the path together is this desire to pay it forward and also fill a gap, an advocacy need with people who've been there and, and done that, but not alone, right? In, in collaboration and in communion, even with others who know and have also the expertise. I know in your article that we referenced uh, the other side of brain injury, which is another article, which is loneliness of the loved one. And you've talked about loneliness in a number of different ways. If there's anything as we begin to close that you would like to share with caregivers around marriage and loneliness. First off, you know, you're not alone because there's so many of us doing this, but it does feel lonely. It doesn't negate that you aren't lonely in your marriage because there's things that your loved one can no longer do. But I found that being open to doing things differently can create a path for things that you never expected possible. And so just be open to making sure you know how you feel and what you want and prioritize those things as you care for your loved one. Yes, I love that. It can be alongside. It's a parallel energy. Um, it doesn't have to be separate, but because separation, of course, is another re-traumatizing experience, but parallel. Well, Karen, I'm wondering for you, as it relates to trauma, to marriage, to growth, uh, being a daughter, being a sister, um, what's your next step? I am working on a memoir about my experience as a caregiver. And so I'm working with the editor now. Um, you know, you've written a book, so you know, you know what that's like. So I'm going through now with those edits, but hope to have 
um, something published and out in the world. I've also been doing essays. So since I won that contest, I um, have also written for the newer Rehab Times. That's the um, Lonely article, as well as I have one coming up in Brain and Life, I think in the winter is when that one would be out. So I continue to do that and find other ways to support caregivers and their families. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And also just as a plug for Karen's beautiful writings, we are overjoyed at Blink of an Eye as we are creating the digital resource library where you will be able to find Karen's essays on that as well. And we thank you so much, Karen, for your example, for your wisdom, for your heartfelt and vulnerable experience that you have been willing to share with us around intimacy and marriage and the impact of a catastrophic injury. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you. I look forward to doing more fun things with you. Indeed, indeed. All right. In the tapestry of family medical crisis, compassion, and understanding, Karen Grazianali stands as a beacon of inspiration, inviting spousal caregivers around the world on a transformative journey to redefine their marriages and their own self-preservation. Through her eloquent words, heartfelt speeches, and unwavering commitment to research, Karen has woven a narrative that will resonate deeply with other spouses and those committed in long-term relationships who shoulder the weight of caregiving responsibilities for their partners. Her belief in the power of personal storytelling, which stirs emotions and drives positive, thoughtful change, has shed light on the often overlooked or not talked about aspects of what holds a marriage together and how to recreate physical intimacy with a differently abled partner and self-care for the caregiving spouse. The recognition earned by her poignant essay, When the Sun Rises, serves as a testament to her ability to work with the intricate relational threads that can knit fractured marriages together, even in the face of medical adversity. By challenging the medical community to embrace a holistic view, one that encompasses the wider aspect of traumatic brain injuries on loved ones, Karen has given voice to other spouses and partners for a collective longing for understanding and compassion. Stay tuned for more incredible insights and learnings from esteemed physicians, therapists, and healers in our Trauma Healing Learning Series. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.